Welcome to the Cornerstone Christian Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Jim Tarr. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit cccbasalt.com. I want to jump right into the Word today. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, starting to read in verse 12. As we're looking at this passage right here, we're realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving a vision to the Apostle John. There's a lot of talk lately about, are we living in the last days? And we're looking at the book of Revelation. We're looking at seven churches right here that Jesus addresses himself. Now let me remind all of us that these are very real churches, and the issues that are addressed are very real problems that these churches are experiencing. So it's really sometimes comforting for me to read the book of Revelation, chapter 2, to just realize that even the churches at the New Testament and in the Scriptures, they went through the same struggles that we did. Because when you decide that you're going to follow the Lord, hey, there is an enemy that is always trying to undermine what God wants to do. So this church is no different as far as that goes. But not only are these seven churches, very real churches, when the vision was received, by the Apostle John as he was in exile for his faith on a very small island named Patmos. He was being imprisoned there. But also we see in the order in which these seven churches are addressed, we see seven periods that we can recognize in church history of events that were unfolding. This church that we're going to read about today is the church at Pergamum, where Turkey is now. And we're realizing that they had very particular trials and problems that they were going through. And it represents a church history period that dates from 312 to 606 AD. And the challenges faced by this church, we can see were faced by this third period of church history. And their challenges were very specific and the response of the church to what was going on during that period is a challenge that we're still facing to this day. So it's very relevant to today, what we're going to be looking at. So let's read this together. Revelation chapter 2, starting to read in verse 12. Can I remind you that the word angel used here is messenger? So I believe that this is an address first to the, the messenger or the pastor that's leading that church. He's responsible to give the word of God, and then he addresses the church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the vision that you gave to John. And I thank you, Lord, that you are present with us. Even as John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, we welcome the Holy Spirit here today on the Lord's Day as we focus our attention on you. Father, I pray that you would speak to every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. This church is in a city known as the throne of Satan. Imagine that. It's kind of like the whole Sin City moniker, if you would. It was known and it was established that it was under a particular microscope of the enemy. 
What's true about any particular church or about any season within the church that it can have very specific challenges and there are times and there are locations where the battle is more intense than others. A spiritual climate and a spiritual environment where actually the cost of being a follower of Christ is much greater. And during that time, it is not the role of that church or of that pastor to ask himself this question. Should I only pay the price that other places and other regions and other churches are willing to pay? Because he won't land right there. He must know what are the strategies of the enemy that are coming against them specifically. And once again, the Lord says, it's incumbent upon that church that they overcome. See, what's happening here inside this church, actually, one of the temptations is the same temptation that was happening in the first church that we looked at, and it was Nicolaitanism. Nico means to be, to suppress or to override, and laity or laos means the people. There has always been a temptation within the church to separate the clergy from the laity. Don't really like those two terms. But actually, it's detrimental to the church. And what happened from 312 to 606 is Nicolaitanism, which separated the pastor from the people, bishops from the pastors. There was a structure and there was an order that was placed within the church that flies in the face of whatever Jesus what he ever meant and intended. This church was tempted to fall into ineffectiveness because the people weren't instructed and they didn't understand that the church is the body of Christ. You are the plan of God. You're the plan of God for this region. You're the plan of God for the Roaring Fork Valley. The cavalry's not coming. You are the cavalry, right? You are the cavalry carrying Calvary with you, okay? And in understanding that, the Lord would just tell us there is an assignment that has come against us. We might not have invited it. We might not have anticipated. And yet it's ours to overcome. You must overcome. That's the commandment of the Lord. So let me take us back for just a moment because it refers to something that's going on that reminds us that the battle that we're facing is, it might be unique, we think it might be unique, but it's actually historical. If it's the throne of Satan that wants to come against the church, Satan's been around a very long time. And the truth is this, he's really good at what he does. And the bottom line is, if that church is not connected to the living Christ, it will not be able to pull down the throne of Satan and the assignment that's coming against them. So in this passage that we just read, there's a reference to a man named Balaam and another name, man named Balak. Now, I'm going to just call Balak the king of Moabites because their name sounds similar and I want to keep it separate in our minds. Balaam was a messenger. He was a prophet of God. Balaam was around when the nation of Israel, the Jews, were traveling through the wilderness. When what was going on in them? There was a promise inside their heart. A promise that God was going to give to them a land. That they're going to be able to be blessed in the land. What does that remind us today? It reminds, us, reminds me of all of us today. That we're people who carry a promise in our hearts. That God has given to us the kingdom of God. And God has given to us eternal life. We have that promise. So the Jews were wandering through the nation of Israel, and there's a prophet, an angel, a messenger named Balaam. And this man named Balaam had a choice of what he was going to do, and the decisions he would make could determine the destiny for the people of God. Here's the thing. The people of God can miss a promise of God. The promise can never be taken away. Once God's promised a group of people once he's promised something to them, his word is his bond. But here's the thing. The promise of God can't go away. So what is Satan's strategy? To get the people of God to go away from the promise of God. That's exactly what happened here. Balak, the king of the Moabites, said to Balaam, I want you to curse the nation of Israel. Because it was obvious to him that God was destroying all the enemies of the people of God. So... The king of the Moabites finds a prophet of God and says, curse them. And he, three times he asked them, would you curse the people of God, the children of God? And he said, I can't curse them. He would get with God and God says, I'm not cursing my own people. So he would go to them and, 
And the reason why he, we find out as we read the passage that God would say, there's no reason for any per, for a curse to land on them. But then we find out that something happened. Balaam began to teach the king of the Moabites. And I say that word keep teaching because that's how we read it in this passage that we just read today. He started trust, he, he started um, Speaking to the king of the Moabites, you, you can't get God to curse his people, but you know what you can do? You can tempt them to follow your gods and to enter into the immorality of the nations that are around them. They will not be cursed at the hand of God, but they will enter into a course and direction for their lives where they'll completely miss God. What happened is the... King of the Moabites tempted the people of God with immoral women. And those immoral women began to have relationships with God's people. And they drew those men into the idolatry of the nations. And so before you knew it, among the people of God, there was a comfort level with the ideas of the enemy being their own ideas. The ways of the enemy became their own ways. Their morality was set by the standard of the enemy. And then we also realized that their words, their idolatry, their worship began to be the worship of the people that were around them. And what was happening in the church of Pergamum is they could not be cursed by the Lord, but what the strategy of the enemy was, just get them to begin to practice immorality. Let the immorality that's in the world be the immorality that's in the church. And then before you knew it, it's linked to their spiritual worship as well, and there came this mix. Now, what's amazing about this fact is that they had lost a key player in their church. And you know why they did? Because he wouldn't change the confession of his faith. His name was Antipas. The Lord referred to him as a faithful witness. A man among them. Imagine if someone among us, and this man might have been, church history tells us we can't prove it, but church tradition says this man named Antipas was assigned to lead the church in Pergamum as the pastor. Church history also tells us this, and so we can't absolutely verify it, that he refused to renounce his faith. Get a load of this. Church history says that he was a doctor, and it was the guild of doctors who turned him in. A guild of doctors turned him in because they said he was not engaging in the worship of Caesar. And so suddenly within the culture, if you would not bow to Caesar, and that's probably why this town was called the seat of Satan, because it was the center of Caesar worship and the worship of Zeus. If you wouldn't bow the knee, then you were out of step with the culture. And when you were out of the step of the culture, they could do with you whatever they want. Again, church history says that he was placed in a bronze bowl which was placed over a fire, and it was heated till it was red hot, and he died. So when you think about this story of what happened to this man, the Lord said, even in the middle of all of that, you did not lose your faith. But he says this to them, you held fast. You held on with tenacity. The church of Pergamum had gotten to the point where they would never deny their faith. So the enemy came in with a second strategy, immorality and walking away from truth. There were no longer any absolutes or anything to stand for. You know what? It's kind of this pick and choose approach to Christianity. We'll glean from it what we want, but if there's any requirements, especially for them concerning their sexuality, that was up for grabs. No pun intended. <laughs> so they were choosing how they were going to live their life and how they were going to believe. They would never deny Jesus. But here's the problem. There was a promise over them, 
But like the nation of Israel, 24,000 of them died by a plague when they stepped out of the blessing of the Lord that was released because they disconnected from the living God and a plague hit them. And that immorality caused 24,000 to die who never entered into the promise of the promised land. They didn't stop being Jews. They didn't stop living under the covenant protection of God. And yet they didn't enter in because of the secondary strategy that came against the Jews. It reminds us today that there's a secondary strategy that the devil wants to bring against Cornerstone Christian Center. I believe that we have established ourselves well enough that it's unimaginable that even if one of us died for our faith, that we would ever reject our faith and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But maybe in the confidence of our covenant and the protection of our salvation, we could rob ourselves of a destiny because the language of the world, the influence of the world, and the lifestyle of the world has caused us to be nothing different for all intents and purposes than the world. And so it's something that we need to remind ourselves. We can hold fast to the name and not deny our faith. And that's a good thing. And the Lord commended them for it. But still, 24,000 missed it. It's a lot of people. So as we look at this text right here, the Lord says, but I have a few things against you because... You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now let's just unwrap that for a moment if we could, because it comes as a warning to us. First off, we've got to be careful that our values are not the world's values. We weren't able to show it today, and I'm sorry, we will on another occasion, a a Right to Life video that was put together by the Pregnancy Center. I'd like to just take a Sunday and just focus on that and land that plane. But you know, there's a lot of evangelicals today, and evangelicals are people who claim that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and that Jesus Christ is the plan of salvation. They won't take a stand on the issue of life in the womb. And the bottom line is the reason that they won't take a stand is because they've come in alignment with the spirit of the world and the spirit of the age, and they don't want to be set apart. And for the sake of the advancement, they say, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, we won't address the issue. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, and, and just say this, and I, we all know that there are dear sisters in Christ who have had an abortion, and the love of Christ is free and available to all those but here's the thing if we're afraid to address an issue it will end up being the destruction of our children and the truth is this why would a child in America today understand that there is value and purpose to his life today and he has meaning if our culture says your mom could have decided whether you were significant or not But when a child is raised in a culture that understands that I exist because God exists and I have a purpose because God has given me a purpose and the day that I'm born and the day that I die are in God's daytimer. I'm on his calendar and every day that I have breath has meanings, a meaning and a purpose. But in order for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, we will sometimes say, but I don't want to offend anybody. When we think about what's going on in this place here, they entered into something that we think is small, but it's actually huge. And I wish Americans understood this. The Lord says concerning them, 
that they began to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. And you might not think that that's anything, but it's actually huge. The reason why America right now is in a great shift because it comes down to this. Who's going to feed you? And who's going to be your daddy? What it comes down to is this, is that people end up worshiping. We are so fundamental in our needs and so very simplistic, really, humanity is, that whoever feeds us, we end up following. Whoever will put a roof over your head and food in your mouth without the acknowledgement of God will end up being the person that you give your allegiance to. And you will allow that individual to determine what your choices are throughout that day. When you think about the Stockholm Syndrome, what is that about? It's about people who have been held captive and their captors kidnapped them, like in Stockholm where they were held in a bank for days. And people were held in the bank against their will. But they noticed something when they met with these people afterwards, that they had an affinity towards those who had held them captive. And they noticed there's something in the nature of humans, and that is this. Even if someone is holding against you against your will, if they give you food, eventually you'll start admiring them. There's a great race today around the world on who's going to feed you. Did you realize that when you go to a restaurant and maybe it was someone else who went and bought the food and someone else who prepared it, but what does the Christian do? Before they eat it, they give thanks to God. Why? It doesn't matter whether it came through a restaurant. It doesn't matter whether dad or mom cooked it. It doesn't matter who paid for the meal. What does the Christian do? They understand this. In the area of food and of provision, it is so important to acknowledge God because if you begin to not acknowledge God, you will acknowledge someone else and something else. And when you acknowledge it, you will begin to have your allegiance go towards it. Believe it or not, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Corinthians, had to deal with the issue of food offered to idols. Now, why did this become so, such an issue inside the church? The Apostle Paul said this, when you go into the marketplace, don't ask the people that are selling the meat, was this meat offered to idols or not? He says, you're better off not knowing because it has nothing to do with that. But if you create an environment and it can come inside a church where you are beginning to, as a people, forget that all of your worship, all of your allegiance, and all of the provision comes from the hand of God, and it sets you apart from the rest of the world. That simple acknowledgement will set you on a completely different course and will establish in you completely different values. It's an expression of worship. When you thank God for your food, it is a worship to him. And it's a realignment of your entire life. It sets the course for your destiny. The simple act, an act of gratitude that the Bible talks about all the time. In the New Testament church, what happened is some people came to the church and they would bold-facedly eat food that had been offered to idols. And in that, the Apostle Paul had to address it. It was not about the fact that God's not more powerful than an issue like that, because he said, if you eat it and you don't know about it, you're going to be perfectly fine. But he also told them this, do you realize that when you get comfortable and you are deliberately and intentionally eating food offered to idols, recognize this, that a presumption in that will set you up because that food, the Apostle Paul said, has been offered to demons. It's been offered to powers. It is acknowledging, hear me out, the throne of Satan established in your city. 
And when you get to the point where you can deliberately give allegiance or become reckless about who you follow, that it actually, the presumption misses the understanding that the demonic can happen when you lose the intention of the purity that Christ has called you to. Is, am I, am I, I'm not losing you, am I? Right? We're all tracking together. Jesus said very specifically when the devil would come to tempt him, he's, the word says that, that the devil had nothing in him. There was no open doors for demonic activity or for the throne, the authority of Satan to be active inside that church because, or, or inside Jesus because there was no immorality or ideas of the world that were his. So, you know, the devil doesn't, he's not as concerned about a church that confesses Jesus as he is about a church that walks like Jesus and talks like Jesus. So that's something just to re remind ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, flee from idolatry. And he reminds us of this. Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Isn't it amazing that food is tied to allegiance and worship and it triggers a response either of the blessings of heaven or the food can release the power of the enemy and the Lord gave us a meal to eat whenever we come together. And the Lord is saying this is an alignment. When you eat my flesh and drink my blood, Jesus admonished us that he is the bread of life. And if you eat of him, you'll never be hungry again. When you come to church and we have communion and it is a corporate gathering of coming together and eating the bread, we break bread together. There's a togetherness that's an important element. But in all of that, it is an acknowledgement of the provision of the Lord for us as a body, but also for our households individually. And Jesus wants us to eat his Bread. What's amazing in this passage, the Lord is addressing idolatry and the church of Pergamum and eating the food offered to idols and a recklessness on letting the world come in and influence the way they think, the way they talk, and how they behave. And the Lord says, if you will overcome this, he said, I'll give you hidden manna. I'll feed you which is incumbent upon us to remember what we dine on throughout the week will determine our destiny. There are so many troughs to eat from in the world. And the Lord would ask us to eat from his trough. Or actually, trough is not a great word. He said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's saying, dine on me which is really kind of amazing. And as you look at this passage, you realize that this was a great church, but you can never let a positive that you're doing believe that it will override a negative that you've invited into your life. Mm -hmm. And that's tempting for all of us. A church can get strong and doing good over here, and yet it only takes one place where the wall's down for the enemy to come in, and it's the same way in our lives. And so at this church, the Lord says, repent, or else I'm coming quickly. Do you know what happened? During the time of Balaam, they got, one man got so presumptuous about his immoral lifestyle that he brought this, the woman with him to, right into the presence of Moses. Like it got to the point where someone actually got bold enough to bring his immorality right in front of the man of God. And he could have cared less. And you know what happened to him? 
and her. A spear was one through both of them. Ah, he's saying, that's really brutal. But let's remember in the book of Romans, it says these things were written for us as an example so that we might understand. The Old Testament was written to help Israel to establish a very earthly kingdom, and it was brutal because the earth is brutal. We are here to establish a heavenly kingdom, and we move forward a different way, not by the edge of the sword or by the power of the spear. But when we look at what happened here is that the Lord was knew this, it was more compassionate for the whole to have the presumption sin removed, even at the expense of a man and woman's life, than it was for this plague that had already killed 24,000 people that continued to spread. That's why the Apostle Paul would get so brutal when he would say, if someone is deliberately living a moral lifestyle inside the church, he said, don't have anything to do with them. And he says, what he does is this. Here's why it sounds so brutal, but understand what God's doing. The apostle Paul says, I deliver them over to Satan so that their soul might be saved. In other words, he's saying this. Oh, no, no, no. You know, let's not create a comfortable that's, environment, that's judgmental or, or anything like that. And I get that. I don't want that environment either. But the fear of become, the lowering the standard to the point where righteousness doesn't matter anymore ends up being destructive to many. And it robs of the mission. So as I look at this passage right here, I realize that when the Lord says repent or else I'm coming quickly and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. I can only imagine what that means. But in all of this, I, here's what was happening. Now, let's, that's what was happening in this local church during the time of John. But if we look at the church period that this is referring to from 312 A.D. to 606 A.D. What happened during that period? Well, let me tell you. We have this emperor named Constantine. And he said he had a vision. And he was told to conquer by the power of the cross. And this Roman emperor embraced Christianity for the sake of victory. Now, it was a mixture of political and who knows what else. But Constantine invited the church to become part of Roman culture. But there was no requirement that the people come out of the world. Whole towns were getting baptized, but people weren't truly saved. What Constantine did is he called the first council of Nicaea, and out of that some good things happened and some bad things happened. Out of the Council of Nicaea, we discover that a heresy was actually put down. And we had established for the church a beautiful creed called the Nicene Creed based upon the scriptures that established the deity of Christ because there were some that were denying the deity of Christ. So Constantine calls all the bishops together. There are over a 1,000, about 300 show up with the, they were allowed to bring two priests and some deacons with them, each one. He offered to pay for their trip, and he also paid, offered to pay for their stay while they were there. So about 300 show up. This council's held together, and who chairs the thing? It's Constantine, an emperor. And you know what happened then? The values of the world and the values of their false religions infiltrated Christianity. They got their creed right. Because look, the Church of Pergamum, they got their creed right. They wouldn't deny Jesus. They held fast to their faith. But what happened at the Nicene Creed was something that is akin to Nicolaitanism, where the certain small group of people override and overpower the laity, the church. Well, what happened at the Nicene Council? What happened is that they determined that the Bishop of Rome was over all the other bishops. Oh, wow, what happened? 
suddenly the birth of a pope. A man who was a little bit less than a man and was better than the other bishops. But another thing was determined, that the bishops were allowed first to go to the Lord's table before the priests could go. So now suddenly bishops are more important than the priests or what we would say were pastors. But even the whole idea of a priest is that there are some among us that have better access to God than anybody else. And so Nicolaitanism came in, and that is layers inside the church where some people have opportunities to be more spiritual than others. Some of you are sitting out there right now and saying, I'll never have the spirituality of a pastor or a missionary or Sunday school teacher or a worship leader or some of the people that you see. And the Lord says, don't enter into that spirit. That's the spirit of Nicolaitanism. I've called all men to operate as priests in a royal nation. All of us need to understand who we are in Christ. You have just as much authority in prayer as any other human being upon the earth. And if there's anything that's been proven to us is that popes and priests and pastors and missionaries are made of the same stuff. And the best of men are men at best, right? And so as we think about this, what's going on in the church, we realize that this hierarchy has settled in, which creates this idea, now think about this, where people at the top, because they might be a bishop or a pope or a priest or a pastor, think they can get away with certain immoralities because they're doing good over here, so they let the door be open over here to something else. Immorality is linked to layers within the church. It's also linked to idolatry. What did... What, what did um, What did Constantine determine at the Council of Nicaea was this, that he would give temples in cities to churches, and the bishops would have the authority over them. So imagine this. In every town, the the temple buildings of worship that were dedicated to false gods were suddenly in the hands of the church, so that before you knew it, the worship of the Lord looked like the previous worship of the false god that used to happen in that temple. Then Constantine did something else. He gave to the, to, to the bishops vestments, fancy robes, so that when they would come together to worship with the people, they were set apart by the garments that they wore. Oh, there's the holy man. Oh, there's the man of God. Oh, look the way he's dressed in the psyche of the individuals. They were something better. They had better access. They had better privilege. They had better opportunity. And then what happens? The people began to lay back. And you know, here was the ultimate result. That they thought they were going to be able to advance the kingdom of God and Christianity by looking like the world. And they liked it. Because the more they looked like the world, the less the persecution happened. So for the sake of survival, it was great. We've got the fancy buildings now. We've got the vestments. we got the system down pat. Got everything organized, and we got everything structured, but something happened. The presence of the Lord left their gatherings. And people didn't gather around the presence. People didn't go to church because of the presence of God. They went there so that they could somehow maybe touch the man of God who could somehow touch God on their behalf. It was never meant to be that way. Nicolaitanism and the spirit of Balaam came into the church. As we've, you know, there's controversies over whether I should have taken an issue on the mask issue or not, and that's fine. But let me tell you one thing that's not fine with me is the people and the Christians and sometimes leaders who would come to me and just say, you know, you shouldn't take such a stand because if you take that stand, it's going to be an offense to the gospel and you won't be able to advance what the Lord wants to do. Well, first off, let me just say this. We're seeing more people come to Christ now than, than before. But here's another thing, too. For the sake of preservations of fancy buildings, investments, and incomes, and, and, and all those kind of things... We can, we can adopt a mindset and fool ourselves thinking that by not being controversial, we're more effective. 
But the truth of the matter is those who have ears to hear and those who are seeking truth are not looking for the same thing. They're looking for a kingdom that's completely different. Amen. They're looking for a different set of values. Strategically, we cannot think that if we look like the world, sound like the world, act like the world, and worship like the world, that it's going to advance the kingdom of God. I'm not saying be different for the sake of being different. I'm not saying we should all wear black or long skirts or put your hair in buns or whatever it might be. I'm just saying I'm, I, that's not a reflection. I'm just talking about... <laughs> I grew up in a culture where that was going on. The women wore black skirts and their hair in a bun and all that. I'm not saying be different for the sake of being different. What I'm just saying is conformity to the world is not the strategy to win the world. Because the Lord said this. He said to them, if you will overcome the spirit of the world in which you live, I will give you hidden manna. I love that. If you won't eat what the world is eating in order to get by the lord will give us that spiritual bread that spiritual manna he will make up any difference he can if you just say oh wait if we take this stand we're going to lose this this and this and the lord is saying but i have people who believe that manna can miraculously show up in the morning if you need manna Amen. and that's all there is to it and then he also says the hidden manna and what does that remind me of Reminds me of the fact that the manna that they had, uh, manna was daily. See, they established themselves with nice buildings, investments, and financial security, and they created this system where they couldn't be destroyed in a day. And they lost everything. And the Lord says, you know, I, I called you to daily bread, daily provision. You make no decision based upon whether it's convenient or not. You make decisions on, on base whether... It's biblical or not. And out of that, we understand that the Lord says, you will experience that miraculous provision of the Lord that's hidden. And what they did was they took, they, the manna couldn't last 24 hours. It showed up as dew in the morning. It would dry. It would turn into this bread. You can make it into a cake. God fed the children of Israel that way. But if you tried to collect more than what you needed for that day, if you tried it to, you know, like build some kind of system where you can survive with human means, he says uh, the next morning it would spoil. It would be rancid. And the Lord, they took a jar of that and they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant and they hid it there. And the only person that could enter into the place where the Ark of the Covenant was was the high priest. And the Lord is saying this, is because what happened between 312 and 606 is that the people stopped going into the presence of the Lord and they stopped knowing that all of them had access and they could actually get into the hidden bread inside the Ark of the Covenant. And you're not going to have some Indiana Jones face-melting experience. No, you are going to be able to, to live on Jesus. He said, I'll give you hidden manna. Do you know what happened to the church? They got nice buildings and nice vestments, and they lost the presence, and they never even noticed. Amen. That's the truth. And then he said, also, I'll give you a white stone, and there'll be a name written on it that no one will know except you yourself. During the ancient days, they would take stones, and they'd give them out for different reasons. There's a lot of debate on what this white stone means with a name written on it, but we do know some of those things dating back to that time, that if you were found innocent, after standing before a judge, they would give you a white stone with your name written on it as proof that you had been vindicated and forgiven and no evidence is found against you. But it also is something to remind us that the Lord would have the priest, the high priest, enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would carry 12 stones on an ephod, and on those stones was written the name, a name of each and every tribe. And then on the priest's high priest's shoulders were two stones, one on the left shoulder and one on the right, each one containing six names of the tribe, of the 12 tribes of Israel. They carried the stone into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord wants you to know today that you carry, you carry authority and a name. 
when, when, you, when you walk into the presence of the Lord in prayer, just a simple prayer, do you understand that you carry stones with your name written on it? And, and do you understand as well, it's not like, oh, you know, Pope John Paul is here praying. Everybody scramble. I'm not, I'm not doubting anybody. I'm just saying this. The angels announce when you come before the Lord in prayer. You, are, you have been given a name known only by the Father, and when you get to heaven, he's going to tell you what that name is. I think it's beautiful. But right now, the Lord has given you a white stone, and it declares your forgiveness. Your name is written on it, and when you enter into the throne room of God, you walk in there like a high priest carrying the authority and the power of God and the declaration that I have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this system has always been about standing for what we believe in and walking in authority of who God has called you to be. So God, I just pray for Cornerstone Christian Center and I ask Heavenly Father that we would not compromise. I, I pray that we wouldn't cherry pick the Bible and decide what we want to follow and what we don't want to follow. I, I pray that we would be true to the word of God. I pray, Lord God, that even we would be faithful to hold fast to your name because you're the one who keeps us faithful. But I also pray, Lord, no spirit of Balaam, no immorality, no false religions or ideas coming into our gathering, but that, God, we would be committed to you. I pray, Lord, that we would be confident enough to know that we can step out in faith and know that you are the God who provides daily bread. I pray that for every person here. And I pray it for us as a church. God will be faithful to us. Let's all stand up this morning. I'm going to close in prayer. I just want to say this. I was thinking about this during worship. We're studying the book of Revelation, and I think a lot, there's a lot of us in the body of Christ today who aren't fighting the fight anymore because we think, well, we're in the last days and we're going to lose, and then we're going to win. So right now we're content with the idea of losing. When the scriptures have been written for our understanding, that God will always stand with those who stand with him. And so I just want to encourage you today, no matter what your fight is, be faithful and be strong. The same victories that are found in the great stories in the Bible, listen, you're a great story. A story of God's redemption. He gave you a white stone with your name on it. Show it. Show it wherever you go. I'm going to close in prayer now. There might be someone here today who's never, never met Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, and I want to create an opportunity for you to invite Jesus to come into your heart. I'm not talking about a formula, and it's nothing that I can give to you, but the Scriptures tell us that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the earth to find those whose hearts are aligned with His. You can align your heart with the Lord Jesus Christ today by confessing your sin, as I did a long time ago. Just tell the Lord, Lord, I've sinned against you, and I want to receive you into my heart today, and I want to make you my Lord and Savior. And Jesus will come in, and he will take his blood that he shed upon the cross, and he'll wash away your sins so that they'll never be remembered against you again. And if you need Jesus Christ as your Savior, and want to receive him into your heart today, I'm going to ask you to do two things. First off, just lift up your hand. The Lord will see it. And I, and I just saying, Pastor Jim, I want to be included in the closing prayer. I want to give my heart to Jesus today. And then I'm going to ask you to do a second thing. I'm going to invite you in front of everybody, yes, to come forward and stand with me. I want to pray for you personally. But the Lord says, if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before the Father. If you've never met Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm not asking right now, are you baptized? Are you a member of a church or anything? I'm asking, do you know Jesus Christ lives inside your heart? So in this quiet moment, would you lift up your hand if you want Jesus today? Just lift it up. I see your hand right there. Is there someone else? You're just saying today, I want to know that I know I'm right with the Lord Jesus Christ. For this one who raised your hand, let's pray this prayer together. Say, Father in heaven, Father in heaven 
I know you love me because you sent your son Jesus to die for me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Wash me clean with your blood. Forgive all my sins. From this day on, you are my Lord and you are my Savior. As you live in me, I will live for you. I receive the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the Lord. Thank you for promising me eternal life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pamela, would you stretch your hands towards Pamela today? Father, I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of the Spirit of God for leading Pamela. And I pray, Father God, that you would come and that you would mark her today. Remember this day forever, Lord. I know you will. As she confesses Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that her life would produce fruit, fruit for righteousness. Lord, let her be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as Jesus has promised. I pray, Father, that you would come to her today and that you would fill her with the Holy Spirit. Baptize her with the Holy Spirit and with fire, oh God. Father, I pray, Lord, do more than she could ever ask or imagine. Lord, we receive her, our sister, into our family. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Let me pray a blessing over you. Father, I pray, Lord, let everyone go with the light of the Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, bless them wherever they go. I pray, Father, help us, Lord. Help us to live for Jesus Christ. Let us make a difference in our day. And I thank you, Lord, for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are going to be elders here in the front. If you need prayer for anything today, please come forward and let them pray for you, whatever your need is. If you didn't give your heart to Jesus, but you know you need to, come up and speak with one of these people today. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast can be heard on our cccbasalt.com website, the CCC Basalt app, or your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to support our efforts financially, you have the opportunity to give at cccbasalt.com forward slash give.